getting into to think tonight of our question, uh, is there life after death? There's a growing interest in our society with subjects associated with the afterlife. I'm sure you would agree. Spiritism, psychic communication, astral projection, and occult practices are on the rise within our nation and community. Such an interest in the afterlife, however, is nothing new. People have always had a fascination with ghosts and other such entities, from the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, to Shakespeare, to the Crumlin Road Jail in Belfast. Popular current newspapers regularly publish articles by people claiming to have experiences of life after death. This topic has been highlighted by Hollywood's return to the first century heresy of, and here's a big word, Gnosticism. Such box office hits as The Matrix film, Vanilla Sky, and The Minority Report have returned to that belief in the afterlife rooted in the first century. The assertion of Gnosticism is that reality, as we think of it, is not reality, but keeps us from the true reality which lies behind this perceived reality. It's like a kind of parallel universe. And our salvation and our deliverance consists in us being set free from this perceived reality into the true reality, the vanilla sky or the matrix, as Hollywood calls it. Tom Cruise, the actor, has a fascination with this idea of release from matter from this world into the other world, appearing in both the Minority Report and in Vanilla Sky. And so this question is of general interest to ourselves, to our community, to the world. Is there life after death? We want to think first of all of what the Bible says about this, some supporting evidence for the Bible's teaching, some objections or alternative views about the afterlife, and then some application of this for our lives this evening. So think first of all of what the Bible is saying about this. Let me summarize the Bible's teaching just in a metaphor for you. The teaching of Scripture is that death is not a wall, but a gateway. It's not the end of our existence, but the door into a different form of our existence. We're thinking in our study tonight in a, in a limited dimension of that afterlife of thinking of the, 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 the time between death and the resurrection and known as the, the intermediate state. What is our condition? Might be our condition after death. One Dutch theologian says that the Bible's information on this subject it is likened to a whisper. Doesn't say a lot about it he maintains. But on this point I disagree with the, the Dutch theologian G.C. Berkauer because the Bible has quite a lot to say about the afterlife. 
just want to briefly draw this to your attention and perhaps you, you, you will want to follow up some of these passages about the afterlife that the scripture refers to. What a subject it is for us to be clear on and, and, and biblically rooted about. Let's go to the Old Testament first and, and then to the New Testament. Let's think of the Old Testament. There are two men who stand out in the Old Testament uh, to teach us about the afterlife. Arthur, the, the man who was seventh from Adam, a man called Enoch. We don't know a lot about Enoch, but the Bible says this about him in Genesis chapter 5, that God took him. He, he was only by, the, by the, 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 the length of years of that stage, halfway through his life. But God took him. The, the word is really strong. God seized him. Snatched off the high street like Will Smith in the film Hancock. His family got up one day and Enoch was gone. Went out for a walk and he never came home. Because God had seized him and taken him to heaven. We've read of Elijah the prophet, another Old Testament example of this, walking along with his, his peer, his comrade, his assistant, Elisha, and then these chariots of fire and horses of fire coming. And the text saying repeatedly throughout that chapter, he went up into heaven. Without dying, still in his body, he went up into heaven. Emphasizing both of these cases to us, the existence of life after death. Some of the Old Testament characters uh, emphasize uh, this truth and it's found right throughout the whole of the Old Testament. You remember that great story of Abraham being asked by God to offer his son Isaac. And we have lots of questions about that. And the questions I won't be able to answer over a cup of tea later on. But what the, the particular point about it is that, that Isaac was spared, you remember, by that ram caught in the thicket. And, and, and Abraham lifted his son off the altar. And the New Testament says in that moment, Abraham was given an insight into the future resurrection of the body. He received his son back as if he was resurrected from the dead. Moses, as he led the people of Israel, and any leader has, has challenges involved in this, good days, bad days, Moses had more than, than any of us will ever experience leading a million and a half people. But what kept him going, the Bible says, was he kept looking for the reward. Beyond this life and his struggles and his trials, his heart was set on the afterlife. Now in the Old Testament, there's two fascinating statements uh, which give us help and assurance about the afterlife. One is the occasion when God met Moses at the, the burning bush. You, you remember that story? This bush that was on fire and it wasn't consumed. And God comes to Moses, who had been a shepherd for 40 years, run away from Egypt. God suddenly comes to him and says, I am the God of Abraham. The Lord Jesus, when he was here on earth, he hones in and puts the microscope under the tents 
of that saying of God at the burning bush. And Jesus emphasizes that, that, that God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, or I will be the God of Abraham, but I am the God of Abraham. He was talking to this group who didn't believe in an afterlife, and Jesus is taking them to this part in the Old Testament, and he's saying, look, there is God, and he's saying, I am the God of Abraham. Now, Abraham was dead for decades, but God uses the present tense, I am the God of Abraham, because Abraham was still in existence. God was still his God, Jesus argues in the Gospels. Then another phrase which is really gripping and repeated in the Old Testament and I find fascinating is a phrase when believers would die in the Old Testament, the Bible says about them repeatedly, they were gathered to their fathers. The phrase doesn't mean that they were buried in the same family tomb, but rather the phrase emphasizes that they had gone to be with their ancestors who believed in heaven, they were gathered to their fathers. Some of the Old Testament laws, uh, they forbid contact with the dead. Why would those laws be there if the dead did not survive death? If there was no afterlife? In the Psalms we have these wonderful and well-known statements. In Psalm number 23, for example, right at the end, as the psalmist describes being led by Jesus as a shepherd and then saying, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's not speaking about the grave there, is he? he he's using the personal pronoun, I will dwell. Me, this person, me, David, the shepherd, the one who exists now, I will continue to exist after this life, I will dwell. The same person carried through death its gateway into the afterlife. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the same psalm that we sung together, to your glory afterward receive me to abide. The psalmist was convinced and persuaded that there is this life beyond this life and, and we will be received there to the presence and the glory of heaven. So the Old Testament, all over the Old Testament, are these wonderful assurances and statements for us that there is an afterlife and for everyone who believes in Jesus, that afterlife is to be looked forward to. It's an afterward life of rest and of glory. The New Testament is clearer in his assertions, as 2 Timothy 1 says, Jesus brought life and immortality to light. By his death and resurrection, we, we get more insight and understanding of the afterlife through our Savior dying and then rising again. It's clearer for us in his life, death and resurrection. And there's three key passages that, that we really should, should know and consider and study uh, regarding the afterlife. Luke 23, Philippians 1, 2 Corinthians 5. Luke 23, here is Jesus uh, on the cross uh, alongside of the dying thief who has acknowledged his sinfulness and has believed in Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise is used three times. 
times in the New Testament, and it very clearly means heaven. 2 Corinthians 12, Revelation chapter 3. It means heaven. And Jesus is saying to that man, and to any of us here who believe in Jesus, when the moment of death comes, today you will be with me in paradise. There's no intermission. There's no delay. Today you will be with me in paradise. The same in Philippians uh, chapter 1 and verse 21. The apostle writing, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's thinking of living in this life, and then beyond this life, it's gain. Now if beyond this life was purgatory, if beyond this life was soul sleep, that would be loss. That would be less than what we have here. What the apostle says, for the Christian who lives for Christ, who knows Christ, to die is gain. Because we enter into the afterlife of glory and rest and the presence of Jesus. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Here is this leaving of the body in death and entering into the glory, the home, the presence of God in heaven. And so this idea of the Old Testament seen in Enoch, seen in Elijah, found in the book of Psalms, is carried over and enlarged on in the New Testament in these three key phrases. But before we read these phrases, you're maybe asking the question, well, yes, there is an afterlife, but what is it like? What is it like for the Christian when they leave this world and enter in the very presence of God? And in these three verses, Luke 23, Philippians 1, 2 Corinthians 5, there's a phrase that occurs in each of them. And the phrase is, with me. See, 2 Corinthians 5, with the Lord. Luke 23, with me in paradise. And in the context of Philippians chapter 1, with the Lord. This is the, the key explanation of what the afterlife is like for the Christian. And, and this is brilliant. It doesn't talk so much about the, the location. It doesn't talk so much about the condition. It doesn't talk so much about the activities. The central message about the afterlife for the Christian is that we are with Christ. Speaking to one of our friends who comes to Noshi Matter on a Thursday and was used to travelling, I was asking her, has she any holidays booked? And she said, well, my friend that went with me has passed away. And it won't be the same for me to travel on my own. The liner, the location, meant nothing for this friend of hers. Because she didn't have the company. What was the big thing in her experience was who was with her. And this is the central truth of the Bible's teaching about the afterlife for the Christian. It's not where we will be or how we will be, but who we will be with. We will be with Christ. Our fellowship with him will be deepened. Our understanding of him will be greater. And this will be heaven for every follower and believer 
in Jesus. And so at the moment of death, our spirits will be perfected. Hebrews 12, 23 speaks of the spirits of just men and women made perfect. Made perfect at the moment of death. Now we sin. Now we struggle to hold on to the sermon, to, to understand these parts of God's word. We're defective, we're limited, we're weak. But at the moment of death, we'll be made perfect. And the angels will accompany our spirit to raise our body into the very presence of God. And our church catechism puts it like this. We will behold the face of God in light and glory. The afterlife for the believer in Jesus. But, but what if you're not a believer in Jesus? Or, or, or if you know people who are not believers in Jesus? What is the afterlife for them? It's a very solemn subject, uh, as you know. And the key passage is in Luke chapter 16, where Jesus spells out for us in his famous parable what the afterlife is like for unbelievers, a place torment a place where men and women desire one drop of water. And just linger over that parable for a moment. <coughs> Some people discount that as a description of the afterlife of unbelievers because it is a parable. But think of this for a moment. How else can Jesus describe the experience of a departed spirit than by a parable, by pictures, by metaphors? And think also of this, that the reality of any experience is always worse than a parable. Perhaps I call with you sometime and I ask you, how are you feeling today? And you say, I'm feeling rotten. Now your experience is far worse than a rotten apple sitting in your fruit bowl on the dining room table. Perhaps you pass through a, a great trial and, and, and you say, I'm a broken man. Your experience, your emotion, your psyche is in a far worse place than that broken plate lying on your kitchen floor. And so that parable of Jesus, describing the separation, the torment, the agony of unbelievers after this world, barely scratches the surface of what the reality truly is. And so, as we've thought of the Bible, it's crystal clear. There is an afterlife for all who believe in Jesus, but also for all who don't believe in Jesus. Let's think secondly of some supporting evidence, and we'll run through these briefly as we move towards the application of the Bible's teaching. NDEs, near-death experiences, they go something like this. John goes for heart surgery. The last thing he remembers is a needle being held up by an anaesthetist. Next thing he knows, he's moving through the most beautiful countryside in perfect peace. 
sees his mother, sees his father. He never wants to come back to his tricky ticker. And then he awakes. Now NDEs support the assertion of the scriptures that there's life after death. And that they show an inbuilt awareness and a belief in humanity. The person experiencing this believes in the afterlife. The weakness of NDEs is that they often see loved ones who have no faith in Christ in a place of peace and serenity. The best explanation of NDEs, therefore, is that people are dreaming in that moment, not experiencing reality. An incline of final judgment. It's in us all, isn't it? Sterling Moss, the greatest racing driver never to have won a world championship, talked about the, 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 the dangers of the course, and he said, I'm frightened of death. I will meet my maker. I did last year gardening some summers to, to pay my way at a, a college and, and a colleague of mine who had no interest in God came from a, 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 a godless, godless home and, and loved that life. Told me of buying a second hand engine in Belfast. Put the engine into his car frame and, and it wouldn't start and so he took the engine out and went back to the, the seller demanding his money back and, and the seller would have nothing to do with him. And my friend with no faith, no interest in God said to this seller, you will meet your maker. Within us all, there's that awareness, that incline. Remember Felix, perhaps you've heard of Felix, the Roman governor, Acts 24, Paul preaching about the second, uh, the final judgment. He was trembling. There's an inkling of judgment in us all, J. Packer says. Time, time, okay. There's no clock in this church building. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. I, I don't propose that there's a clock in this building. Uh, but, but we wrestle with time, don't we? We're uncomfortable in time. We're a misfit in time, a square peg in a round hole, a fish out of water in time. Time is a precious commodity, but we're always considering it as our enemy. It's going too slow, or it's going too fast. We always seem to be fighting against it, never comfortable in it. We wear our watches, we have our phones, beepers are going off all over the place. Animals seem to be comfortable in time, but we're not. It's indicating a sense of imprisonment. That we're made for something greater. We are made for eternity. The potential. We never reach our potential in this life. Just think of the, the England football team. <laughs> People always fall short. We go along to the cemetery and, and there's a, a broken pillar indicating that, that this person, full of potential, never reached it, never attained it. David Cameron, well-educated, but had weaknesses as well as strengths. Jeremy Corbyn, many weaknesses. Gordon Brown, two classes ahead in his school, PhD in history, on the wrong that, Trevor, so, uh, on the verge of leading the Labour Party, but pipped to the post by Tony Weir when he became leader. Couldn't manage it with all the potential. Couldn't achieve it. Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, what potential, what education, what background, what training, what gifts. Like us all, we don't attain it in this life 
and it's pointing to an afterlife. Important evidence. Thirdly, some objections uh, or opposing views, and, and, and we mention these because that they're really common within our community. Some people just say they don't know what happens to a person after death. No one's come back to tell us, they argue. Thomas Hobbes, 17th century English philosopher, thought that death was a great leap in the dark. British politician Tony Benn wondered what had happened to his deceased wife. In his diary, he wrote, had she disappeared into thin air? He just didn't know. And many people in our society applause the Bible, are deaf to its teaching, won't bow to its authority, and live with the agony and the darkness of not knowing. Annihilation, that's a death. We cease to exist. Aristotle is an ancient view. Death appears to the end of everything, he said. Epicurus, another ancient philosopher, while we exist, death is not present. When death is present, we no longer exist. But the problem with that view is, what about writing the wrongs? What about the serial killer? The ruthless dictator? The rapist? Will they just be all wiped out? Will that existence just be gone in a moment? Can we live and do anything we like in this life, knowing that there's no life beyond this life? No day of reckoning for anyone? Universalism argues that we all end up in heaven, the devil included. We all go to a place of peace. It's a dominant view within our society and community expressed at many funerals. He, she is at peace without any supporting evidence or argument. Henry Longhurst, the senior golf commentator of the BBC, spoke to a colleague who was dying of cancer. He said, I've never been a religious man, but I know you and I will meet again in another place many years from now. He had no religion. He believed in an afterlife that all enter a state of peace. When Ronnie Cray, the notorious gang leader for 20 years, died in, in March 1995, one newspaper reporter wrote, his sins were forgiven as soon as he met God. But the Bible doesn't give us that hope. Only by repenting of our sins and by believing in Jesus Christ can we have that sure and certain hope of entering into the glory of heaven. Reincarnation is an incredibly popular view. Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Taoism, the New Age movement all believe in this. 20% of Americans, 33% of Europeans believe in reincarnation. The word means to be made flesh again. One website offers that if you answer a series of questions honestly, it will forecast what form of you you will return in. Now, I was tempted to do that, but I thought it was a waste of time, and they might plague me and contact me for years to come. Shirley MacLaine, a new ager, said, it's like show business. Keep doing it till you get it right. But death, is not a revolving door. 
It's a one-way street. Hebrews 9 says we're appointed to die once. And after death, the judgment. Purgatory believes that after this life there's a period of suffering for, for the souls before they pass into heaven. We find no scriptural grounds for that. Soul sleep advocates that it's, it's our souls after this death that go to sleep until the resurrection. We argue that it's our body that goes to sleep when the Bible talks about sleeping at death. Conditional immortality. We also reject it. It's based on the Bible's use of the words destruction and perish. John 3, 16, shall not perish but have everlasting life. But we know that perish does not mean annihilation. We speak about rubber perishing, not ceasing to exist. What we mean is it's not able to fulfill the function it was made for. So we turn to God's Word. We listen to what the Old and the New Testament says. That for the Christian and the non-Christian, there is an afterlife. So how should this message affect our lives? Let's be prepared. Let's be prepared. The Bible says there's a heaven and a hell. We need to be prepared. We're going to journey to the end. And beyond the end of this earthly life. And tomorrow is uncertain for us. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote that death is often as near to the young man's back as to the old man's face. We don't know the length of our days. We need to be prepared. And surely as we've thought this evening of the afterlife, we've been asking ourselves, am I going to heaven? Am I going to hell? Jesus says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. By his life, by his death, by his resurrection, by trusting in him, even in this very moment, in a simple prayer of acknowledgement of our sins and committing our life to Jesus. He gives us that hope and assurance that through him we will come to the Father's house. Let us tell others of this great hope we have in Jesus. There is uncertainty in our world about the afterlife. There is much error in our world in its belief about the afterlife. There are amazingly complex suggestions about the afterlife. The Bible is clear. The gospel is deep, but the gospel is simple. Whoever believes in the Son of God shall not perish, but have everlasting life. My granny was the wife of a Don.
She didn't spend long in school. She never advanced in her education. She didn't read many books. She was happy to go chasing around the farmyard after pigs. But she was a Christian. Then her last day she was taken into hospital, confused, her mind and mouth rambling, unable to recognize some of her family or her vocation. But in the last moment of her life, she sat up in bed and opened up her arms to receive the blessing and grace of Jesus. She had hope, a simple childlike trust in Jesus Christ. As we turn aside from the false and empty suggestions of our society and come to God's word, we find the certainty that through Jesus Christ we have life.